0: It's Thursday, May 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some good news for regions that are reopening their economies. A recent study from South Korea is showing that COVID-19 patients that have tested positive after recovering are not infectious. These so-called repositive patients weren't spreading any lingering infection and were shedding only dead virus particles. Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for what we are learning about how contagious someone is after recovering from the virus. Next, as all 50 states are reopening in some form, how ready are gyms to reopen? For a lot of gym owners, there is a frustration in the lack of any strict guidelines. Temperature checks, extra cleaning, and hand sanitizer are a must, but face masks still present an uncertainty, with some gyms letting the customers decide on whether to wear them. Hilary Potkowitz, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the first gyms are handling the comeback. Finally, in-person school might be canceled right now, but that hasn't stopped scandals from being resolved. On Monday, the University of Kentucky fired the entire coaching staff of its storied cheerleading program. A Three-month internal investigation said that the students were engaging in hazing rituals, public nudity, and drinking alcohol on the coach's watch. Tim Sullivan, sports columnist at the Courier Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: More importantly, the researchers in Korea believe that the diagnostic tests we use aren't well able to distinguish between sort of active particles of the virus and particles of the virus that are not active and, and
0: are able to sort of be infectious. Joining us now is Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. That's some interesting news coming out of the South Korean CDC, and it might be some pretty good news, actually, concerning recovered patients and possible immunities. Researchers are finding evidence that patients who test positive for the coronavirus after recovering aren't capable of transmitting the infection, and they could have antibodies that could prevent them from falling sick again. Emma, tell us a little bit more about what they're saying
1: a really interesting piece of research. They basically looked at people who had had COVID and later tested positive, even though it had been some period of time since they had been sick, and basically attempted to answer this question of, are people still infectious even later on? And the researchers seem to think that they are not infectious, which is good news because Knowing that people have recovered and are longer infectious is extremely important, obviously, as we try to reopen economies and send people back to work and school and things like that. And it's also kind of a hopeful note in terms of this still lingering question about whether people who have had COVID and survived and recovered are immune, although that's still, I think, something many people would tell you is still a big unanswered question at this point.
0: I want to make sure I get this right. These people that tested positive again, were they sick again? Were they showing symptoms themselves or they just tested positive after previously getting over it and having a negative test? So
1: they had recovered. It sounds like the researchers had had a negative test from them and then they had another positive test. They're calling them quote unquote repositive patients. So that's important here because there's also been an indicator that they have a negative test. But more importantly, the researchers in Korea believe that the diagnostic tests we use aren't well able to distinguish between sort of active particles of the virus and particles of the virus that are not active and and are able to sort of be infectious. So that's kind of the key thing here. This really underscores the limitation of the diagnostic tests. That we have rather than sort of making bigger sweeping kind of conclusions for us about how coronavirus works.
0: So in these people that had recovered, they also had some antibodies against this. And that's also interesting, too. uh, You compared this a little bit to a recent study in Singapore about SARS, people who had recovered from SARS. And they had neutralizing antibodies 9 to 17 years after their initial infection. Now, we don't Mm -hmm. know, obviously, if this is the case with COVID-19 specifically, but it is kind of a cousin virus, let's say. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of the thing. The hope is that your antibodies would protect you for quite some time after getting infected.
1: We've seen it be this way with other viruses, right? We've seen antibodies be protective in other scenarios, but there are a lot of limitations due to the fact that this is a coronavirus. And we also don't know if there is immunity, how long it lasts. And that's kind of the biggest question right now, kind of underscoring every public health effort we launch, every private sector effort around coronavirus. I mean, the answer to this question is going to have really widespread implications. And, you know, you might be able to say, we believe this. We assume there probably is immunity, at least some level of immunity, but we just don't know that for sure because we haven't studied that specifically at this point and been able to come to a firm conclusion.
0: Tell me a little bit more about people testing positive again, because some of these tests can't distinguish between dead and virus particles, because this was one of the discussions that I was having with somebody else of, does the virus just lie dormant or do we get rid of it completely? So what does this kind of mean on that front?
1: Understanding that researchers have is that the virus particles may remain in cells even after they've sort of been inactivated. So the idea is that our, the tests we have aren't always, they believe, able to distinguish between active and inactive particles. And I think it's worth noting like this is just sort of one element of a larger discussion we're having around diagnostic tests and how well they work on the whole. I mean, can we rely on a test that you take when you're sick to be the be all end all in terms of saying you have coronavirus, you don't have coronavirus. And I think this study is just the sort of the latest proof that there are extremely important limitations that we have to consider. I think many doctors would tell you if you're someone and you test negative for COVID 19, like, They may still think you might have it, and they may still tell you to self-quarantine. They may still tell you to be extremely cautious in your behavior, not go outside for 14 days and the like, because there are other factors at play, and we can't rely entirely on these tests to just tell us yes or no.
0: But as you mentioned at the beginning, this is a positive sign for regions that are reopening their economies, so much so that South Korea has revised a bunch of its protocols And basically saying that if you've Mm -hmm. recovered from this, you went through your period of isolation, you're good to go. Move freely. We don't have to worry about you anymore.
1: Right. And I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, I actually just spoke with a person in public health in Utah who was saying they've seen the same problem, right? People had COVID-19, they recovered, and they can test positive for sometimes months afterwards. And she said, you know, we're just following the CDC protocol, which are, I think, probably pretty aligned with what Korea is doing, sort of just basically waiting a certain amount of time after people have symptoms, you know, ensuring they've recovered and kind of following that protocol around infection. So I think, you know, it does pose, you know, knowing this emerging evidence around how antibodies with this disease work will kind of embolden public health officials, you know, not just in in Korea, but uh, around the world in terms of making some of these decisions.
0: Emma Court, health reporter at Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much. I was uh, greening them in a mask as well as with a face shield having a glove on my hand, taking their temperature. They f- they are filling out a daily symptom report, and then a their direct manager is making a physical eye check on them as well.
1: Joining
0: us now is Hilary Potkowitz, contributor to The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Hillary. Sure, thank you. As the country is in this phase of reopening now, I think by now all 50 states have reopened in some type of capacity. I want to try to focus on different aspects of that, and Jim's are one of those specific things that could be potential breeding ground for a virus or any other illness to spread just due to the amount of people in a possible location, the different touching of equipment, and how quickly those things get cleaned up. So, Hillary, you wrote an article about how ready are gyms to reopen, and all the gyms, depending on where they're located, have to follow their local guidelines, but it still seems that masks are kind of that one thing that nobody agrees on. You have to wear them in some places, you don't in others. That seems to be one of the major stick-ups.
3: So not every state, you know, agrees that gyms need to open in the first phase. But of the places that have, it seems like the states seem reluctant to put a real mandate down. They'll say things like recommend people wear a mask or they'll say that the gym should encourage people to wear a mask. It's very squishy. And I think it's hard for gym owners to really know what to do. But there are a few things that they're very specific about the regulations. You have to separate equipment or, you know, turn off every other treadmill, for example, keep people farther apart. A lot of places are not allowing locker rooms to open yet. And swimming pools and and gyms, nowhere are they allowing. Swimming pools and basketball courts and things like that are not open yet.
0: As far as the way, let's say, a, a machine would get cleaned or something, if somebody is using it, do they stop usage of that machine until somebody can come and clean it? How is that type of thing working out?
3: Most places are setting up disinfecting stations within easy reach of every machine. Every gym that I spoke to in states that they're opening, they've multiplied the number of hand sanitizing stations and disinfecting wipes. And they're telling customers to wipe down the equipment before and after they use it. And the gym staff themselves are wiping everything down. Some places are doing an intermission in the middle of the day at one o'clock and doing a deep clean of everything and then letting people back in. Others are just constantly, you have trainers who are now cleaners, basically, who are yeah. just wiping down all of the equipment all the time. You definitely want to be, you want the cleaning to be conspicuous at whatever <laughs> gym you go to. You want it to be very conspicuous. and. If possible, you want them to have doors open, for example. Every doctor that I talked to said that they like air movement, exchange of air. Things should be wafting through. You want windows or doors open if possible. So
0: Georgia, Oklahoma, Tennessee, they're among these handful of states that have allowed gyms to reopen in the first wave of business reopenings. Tell us a little bit about conversations you've had with people in these areas? Because there's a few differences. There's the smaller local gyms, there's the bigger chain gyms, and then there's even CrossFit centers, which all have their kind of individual quirks to them.
3: Most of the places that I talked to, there were a few large gym chains that have reopened in places like Crunch, Planet Fitness, Gold's Gym. Those chains have all reopened and they they have corporate cleanliness policies that in a lot of cases are more strict than whatever state policies they have. And then the CrossFits and smaller gyms, they're a little bit on their own. I mean, the ones I spoke to in Georgia, they have the Centers for Disease Control right there in Atlanta. So I feel like they maybe are in a better position than most because some of their members work for the CDC. So they can ask them, hey, what do you really recommend? And most of the places the instructors are required to wear masks. And as far as the members go, it seems to be optional. But some of the places like Orange Theory, for example, is making their instructors wear masks and goggles and they're requiring members to wear masks. So everyone is like fully covered and protected. Other places, they're making it more optional. And it really is down to like you as a gym member have to kind of weigh the risks and the benefits because now we know about, you know, heavy breathing and coughing and singing, the choirs, you know, that had the spread um, in other parts of the country. And the problem with, you know, the heavy breathing and then panting is that those particles go in the air, then they fall onto the machines. And that's what worries doctors the most. So it's really about cleanliness, space between people and your own comfort level.
0: What has been the turnout to the gyms? What has been the return of people so far?
3: It's only been a week or two for most places, but all the gyms that I spoke to said that they're looking at about half capacity. They've limited the number of people that can work out at a time. A lot of places now you have to reserve your spot online ahead of time. Even if it's not a class, you just need to reserve your workout time, for example. But only about 50%, if that, of the amount of traffic that they would normally experience at this time of year, they're seeing. However, I will say that every gym I spoke to had new members join. And they say it's a combination of people just itching to get out of the house and do something. And also, people are much more aware of health and the implications of poor health and how sort of this virus has impacted people who are on the unhealthier end of the scales. And so a lot of the gyms said that they have a positive uptick in people saying, you know what, I really want to like take control and, of my personal health and like start a new direction.
0: Hilary Pakowitz, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
2: will not hear of any behavior such as this going forward. We have excellent uh, oversight in terms of uh, Sandy Bell and all the other structures that this university puts in
0: place. Joining us now is Tim Sullivan, sports columnist at the Courier Journal. Thanks for joining us, Tim. My pleasure. I wanted to talk about a school cheerleading scandal. It's this interesting time during the pandemic. Schools were canceled, a lot of things are shut. So when the story came up, I was like it kind of struck me. I you know, I didn't know something like this was ongoing, but apparently this was a uh something that had been being investigated for quite some time. The University of Kentucky fired their entire cheerleading coaching staff from their program on Monday and they said that students on the team had engaged in hazing rituals and public nudity and used alcohol on the coach's watch. Tim, tell us a little bit about what happened.
2: There were a couple of trips that the uh, team took, one to Lake Cumberland, another, uh, I believe, in in Tennessee, that were designed as bonding-type experiences and were uh, scheduled very heavily for most of the time that the the team was together, but there was some downtime and there were uh, college students being college students. And uh, some of the uh, things that were alleged in the report I don't think would come as a huge surprise to anyone who attended college, that uh, there were uh, sexually charged chants and uh, topless and bottomless flips into the lake and drinking and you know, all of this that was uh, supposed to be guest team rules. Whether it happened in view of the coaches or with the knowledge of the coaches, I think seems to be the sticking point. At this point, there's been quite a lot of backlash from cheerleaders and former cheerleaders saying that, you know, that they were adults and that, They were responsible for their own actions, and the coaches didn't really know what was going on. And that seems to be the crux of the matter right now is whether uh, the university uh, can demonstrate that they had knowledge or should have had knowledge and the coaches are going to fight back. That we don't know.
0: This was a three-month internal investigation done by the University of Kentucky, and it was prompted because there was a complaint made by a student's parent in early February. And as you mentioned, they were doing these basket tosses where they can hurl one of the cheerleaders and they were hurling them into the lake. And as you mentioned, either topless or bottomless. They said that several cheerleaders became intoxicated and some required medical treatment during the retreat because of the drinking. So these are all the allegations that are involved in that part of the report. Also, I guess they were looking in to see if there was any sexual assault or any type of sexual misconduct during those trips. In the report, they said that they found no evidence of any of that stuff.
2: There were things mentioned in, in the report that they had heard, but that they uh, could not confirm or did not, were not confident enough to allege. I can imagine with a, a team of, I think, 54 cheerleaders of both genders, that you're going to have certain activities that place individuals at risk. And I think one of the things that may be not as well understood by some of the students as the administrators is that you know the the hazing that's been alleged can be very subtle and there can be a lot of peer pressure applied that may seem reasonably innocent to some and less so to others and that may be a big bone of contention as well as, as this moves forward to me it has a lot of echoes of the 2014 case involving the Ohio State marching band and my daughter happened to be a member of the band at that time and uh a lot of the allegations are very similar, and the result is that the, you know, the band leader lost his job, and I, I had a hard time imagining that this will go much differently.
0: So the four coaches have been removed now. One of the interesting things that happened was that some of the students on the cheerleading squad were rallying around the coaches on social media. How did that go?
2: It's ongoing. I mean, I've found already at least four incidents or cases of female cheerleaders who have posted Videos of themselves being flung into the lake you know, with both halves of their bikini intact—that doesn't prove that there wasn't you know, nudity uh, in other situations, or possibly even with these same girls in, uh, in other uh, flips. But I think the message that the students and the cheerleaders, the cheerleaders and former cheerleaders are trying to get out is that, you know, what was done was done, you know, by free will, and students who, by and large, were uh, of legal age. There may have been some examples of minors who were exposed to alcohol, and almost certainly were, but I don't know that that is at the heart of this. I think there, there's there's more concern from the uh, sexual harassment and the sexually charged behavior than the drinking, at least. Uh, you know, that's my perception. That, that hasn't been stated emphatically.
0: Tim Sullivan, sports columnist at The Courier-Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. your daily diet.